we can get grabbed by this part of ourselves that in this case, it's a part of me that goes into, there's no help for me in this situation. I have to cope with this on my own. I'm just going to batten down the hatches and the angry woman's going to come and I'm going to get the whatever happen and we'll deal with it later kind of thing. And which I think is exactly what I learned to do as a child is to just cope that way. Welcome to The Art of We, the podcast where we explore how committed partnerships can be potent vehicles for fully delivering our gifts to the world. Hi, I'm Krista Vanderveer, a seasoned consultant and executive coach. And I'm Dr. Will Vanderveer, a leader and educator in integrative mental health and wellness. As husband and wife and business partners, we keep learning that the key to maximizing our authenticity and impact in the world lies inside the health, security, and depth of our relationship. On this show, we'll pull back the curtains to share lessons, insights, and practices from our own marriage and professional careers that help us thrive. If you're a leader, founder, or overachiever, and you want to leverage your relationships for personal and collective growth, then you're in the right place. Hi, everybody. Hi, everyone. Happy 2023. Happy 2023. A whole brand new year. I'm excited. Me too. I'm really looking forward to this year. So speaking of New Year's and New Year's resolutions and goals and all the things, some of us really get into that. Some of us don't celebrate the New Year holiday. But for those of us who do, this feels like a timely episode. Yeah, we've been reviewing our year and checking to see where we could do better next year and setting our goals and our plans. And it just seems like a really good time to talk about what can get in the way. Yes. So Dr. Will, tell me about what can get in the way from a psychological perspective. So we're going to be talking about limitations here. Right. But we're going to be talking about internal limitations. Right. We're talking about everyday, ordinary psychological limitations. We're not talking about the very real external limitations and problems that impact lots of people from being able to achieve their goals. Yeah. Wars, health. Sure. Racism, discrimination. Disabilities of any kind. Poverty. Yeah. Like just there's real limitations out there. So just to clarify, internal psychological limitations. Right. And we have Dr. Will, who is very well versed (laughs) in these, in this language. Probably the biggest reason I'm well versed is because I have looked at my own internal system of parts and particularly the victim part Mm. is what I think we're looking at today in terms of the part of us that likes to say, I can't dot, 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 and has a tendency to complain or to whine about how hard it is or what the reasons are that we can't do what we want to do, be who we want to be, have the life we want to live. And so we're going to take a little dive into that territory today. Yeah. And for those of you who do set goals at the beginning of the year, one aspect that we're looking at here is what happens when you set those goals and you're like, okay, it's a new year. It's January 1st. I'm going to do X, Y, Z. And then commonly, often we stop with our intentions that we set out at the beginning of the year. Yeah. Whether it's like, I'm going to, you know, work out every day or five days a week, or I'm going to not drink alcohol for X amount of time, or I'm going to market my new product every day and put attention towards it Mm -hmm. or 
I'm going to really do a better job at leading my company and mm-hmm. learning specifically how to delegate or whatever the thing is. Like right. we fall off. And so I want you to share with us about these repetitive patterns that you are so great at noticing. Right. Like what happens for us when we, when that happens, like what, what's going on there? Cause in the beginning we're saying we can. Right. And then at some point we either give up because something's not happening or we're not getting what we want or we're not enjoying the process. Well, I think there are a couple of inquiries that are important to make. And I think the first one, which we don't need to spend a lot of time on because we've talked about it in the past, is an inquiry about values. And am I choosing this New Year's resolution because I've internalized my parents' values or my friends' values or my partner's values or something that's not in alignment? Right. Which is a surefire recipe for not keeping the commitment. Right. Because our heart's not really behind it. Right. Our mind is what's driving it, not our heart. Right. Yeah. So once that inquiry is done, then we can look at what is the part of me that's afraid of success or expansion or the drudgery of the commitment of like the five day a week workout for a year. Mm -hmm. You know, it might be exciting for a week or two maybe, but what about the 10th or the 20th or the 30th week? Is it boring? Right. Or do we go into, I can't, that I can't for some reason. Like I can't keep this up. It doesn't feel good. I'm not making the progress I should be making. Right. So looking at the victim, I think is a really useful strategy for gaining self-responsibility. And through more self-responsibility, we can go more toward self-empowerment and follow through on things. And it seems like we can identify the victim by complaints. Right. Like, I can't, this sucks, I'm not getting what I want, those kinds of self-talk. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. I'm not getting the results that I expected to have by now. Right. And so, okay, so let's say the victim's at play in something, you know, that we desire and we're not getting it. Then what do we do? Well, then I think I really like bringing in an inquiry, a conversation with the victim, developing a relationship with the victim, Mm -hmm. trying to really understand what the victim needs and wants. We've talked about IFS before from Dick Schwartz, which is a beautiful framework for understanding the different parts of ourselves that are at play in any moment, in any perception. Yeah. And that stands for internal family systems. Right. So my understanding of IFS in this context is that the victim would be regarded as a part of us that's a healthy part of us that became burdened by carrying the victim perspective. And so that part of us tends to be not well known by us because it's kind of aversive to acknowledge that we have a victim perspective inside of ourselves. We'd rather not know that or not relate to it or not acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's the ostrich with the head in the sand of everyone sees it except us, right? If we're disavowing it, it's not not hidden from anyone else except us. Okay. But that's the challenge is that it's hidden from us. So, so if there is a repetitive issue, like, okay, somebody, let's use this inside of a couple, like part of what we're wanting to bring here is first of all, the landscape of doing this kind of work inside of a 
partnership specifically is really potent when both partners are on board. You have the language and the skills and the tools and the desire to help heal and contact victim right. inside with each other. Right. It can be done in any relationship, of course. You know, friendships. Some people go into their families of origin systems and work that angle, which is, oh my gosh, like that's just such a brave and courageous system to get into. But we have found that it really helps us actually meet the goals that are within our values when we can have this frame of, when we can have this perspective about how to work with the I can't or the victim parts of us. Right. Yeah, I imagine having an ally in your corner whose commitment to you and vice versa is to keep an eye out for the victim and to lovingly and carefully uh, help one another identify it. It's a huge advantage over someone who is on their own trying to, even if they're a very conscious person and trying to work with the victim in a conscious way, it's way harder to see your own blind spots. Yeah. Even if you're in a partnership, you could be working on it alone. Like right. I know for me, when you are willing to reflect back to me something that I can't see, it's the most helpful way that you can support me. I mean, there's so many ways that you support me, but instead of like, if you were afraid to say something or if, you know, you're concerned that I might get hurt or my feelings get hurt, or there might be a rupture. When you're willing to do that and go there with me, I feel like you're telling me something that nobody else is probably really going to be telling me. Right. At that level, because you see it and you know it and you're familiar with it every single day. And as you are pointing out, you could live a long time in a partnership and not have the agreement with your partner that it's not only acceptable, but it's needed and desired to have that reflection. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. I feel like even though it's not a vow, we are doing that with each other. Yeah. And we could probably find it in our vows in some form. Yeah. Like around growth orientation or something like that. But yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of shame around the victim, right? Nobody wants to be told. It's one of the hardest things to hear is, wow, you, you really sound like a victim right now. <laughs> <Totally>. <laughs> it's so intense to hear that. And there's ways to say it <laughs> yeah. that aren't as triggering, yeah. you know? Yeah. With love and care. And yeah. you do that really well with me. Like you've never said to me, to me personally, maybe you can say it to your bros, but you really sound like a victim. Mm -hmm. But maybe you, could, you should try it sometime. Maybe I can handle it. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a huge advantage to have an agreement with your partner that the victim is going to be cared for. The victim's going to be identified. The victim's going to be a part of the conversation. Because ultimately the victim really doesn't want anything new to happen. Anything new and different is scary for the victim. Right. The victim really wants to maintain the victim's story and the status quo. Right. And the I can't because dot, dot, dot. So if we go back into goals. Yes. And repetitive processes, like, okay, I have a goal for my career mm -hmm. that I want to meet. Yes. And year after year, I'm doing the work to come up with that goal and I'm my heart feels committed to it. And I step into the new year and then by the mid-year, you know, things aren't going as planned. And by the end of the year, I'm not even in contact with it, mm -hmm. for example. And then I start the process again. When we look at what's going on there, one frame to look at that 
is to look through the frame of something happened to me that I had an experience mm-hmm. when I was young that went some sort of story or belief about, my, about myself went down deep into my unconscious and is operating there at a level that keeps me going back into the victim state. Even if I try to realign myself with that goal, somehow I end up back in that victim state. Is that one good way to talk about it? I think that's a great way to talk about it. And these core narratives, these core stories about who we are and what's possible in our lives, sounds like maybe there would have to be some serious trauma that would install that in a person. Mm -hmm. But in 20 years of practicing psychiatry, I can tell you that sometimes these negative narratives can be traced back to an experience that's not all that dramatic. It's not all that severe. Mm -hmm. But there, there can be an event where the young person walks away thinking, I'm X, Y, Z, you know, I'm incapable of whatever, right? Because of whatever, right? So I think our invitation here is that if there's a repetitive pattern that's showing up for you, something you really want, or a goal you're going after, or even inside a relationship, this can happen where we can get stuck with each other, and we can't find our way through that likely there's something that we could go back in history to attend to in a very loving and conscious way with each other, right. and probably with support, which we'll talk about that, to address the issue so that there brings more spaciousness to the actual issue, which then would translate to us being able to operate in a different capacity. Exactly. And just to flesh it out a little more, this core narrative becomes a hill that we defend. In other words, a core narrative is a an identity that new experiences can threaten. So a new experience of, I got my promotion in my career, you know, on the surface of that, we would think, oh, wow, what a beautiful expression of success for that person. But if that person's core narrative is getting threatened by that promotion, then the person unconsciously might sabotage that experience in order to come back to the familiar narrative. Right. So when we start seeing patterns of repetition of sabotage or losing steam in a commitment we made, it's a good time to actually investigate and see what's operating. Okay. So after this break, let's get into some real life examples that you and I have used or had recently. Does that sound good? Yeah. We'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this episode. I want to take a quick break to let you know about a gift we created for you and your partner. We compiled our top 10 relationship agreements, agreements that have been so powerful in supporting the success of our partnership that we even turned them into our wedding vows. These agreements help us stay connected, growing, and thriving as a couple, and they've been critical to help us create a kind of we that's way beyond what we've ever experienced before. You can download this free gift at kristavanderveer.com. That's K-R-I-S-T-A-V-A-N-D-E-R-V-E-E-R.com. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, it would be so meaningful to us if you left us a rating and review. Not only does it help others find us, but it gives us critical feedback on how we're doing. Thanks in advance. And now back to the episode. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit and you and I had a little bit of a conflict just a week or two ago around something that we can't get in here right (laughs) so 
I am a big soccer fan and I love the World Cup. I've been watching it since I was a little kid and I had some guys over to watch the final game and it didn't cross my mind that for some reason it didn't even occur to me that sometimes a world, any soccer game, World Cup game, World Cup final can go into extra time or even penalty kicks afterwards. So if you watch the game, you're very aware that Argentina beat France on penalty kicks and the game lasted about an hour longer than what was expected. And we, so we're in mountain time. So the game is supposed to go from eight to 10 and yes. we had something scheduled right at 11. Yeah. For some context. And so our agreement was have the guys over great eight to 10 fantastic. Yeah. And then we'll be ready to go yeah. for this 11 o'clock thing. So I'm having a great time half a dozen guys over loving the game and all of a sudden it becomes clear that it's going to be a draw and I don't say anything to you mm -hmm. about what's happening. It's going into overtime past Extra 10 o'clock. Yeah. yeah. And I can feel a little bit of a freeze happening in my system, mm -hmm. which to me always suggests that something's going on from my history mm -hmm. from childhood. Of course, I wasn't aware enough of this at the time to reach out to you or say anything to you. Right. But I started to have this feeling of dread that I'm going to have the woman in my life come in to a situation where I'm having a great time with my guy friends and be furious that I didn't keep a commitment to her. Right. So this is all going on kind of subconsciously in the background, and I'm starting to get a little frozen and scared. Right. And... And I think, meanwhile, you were texting me like, <laughs> like, because I was in a different part of the house. Yeah. I wasn't watching the game with you guys. And you're like, game is going over, period. <laughs> yeah. So, like very, like, just terse statements. They weren't questions. They weren't inquiries. They weren't, hey, <laughs> I realize we have this thing. They were yeah. just very, like, it was a very eye move. Like, I felt yeah. like you're in an eye situation. Yeah, I was in a nice space. And it was, <laughs> it was not my shining moment of collaborative relationship. And as we unpack to this later, I become aware that, I was having a repetition, just mm. like we talked about earlier today. And the repetition was a little bit different because I realized that I was the common denominator in all of these repetitions right. of previous experiences. Of like the woman coming into yeah. the fun, and yeah. the, right. And then you having like a rupture with yeah. her. Yeah. yeah. Uh -huh. And going into defense and justification right. and, right. <laughs> you know, gas blaming and gaslighting and whatever. So... As we unpacked this and I started looking at what happened in the past, I realized, you know, <laughs> a little late, arguably, but realized that I stopped asking for help pretty young in, in my life. And all I had to do in that moment when I saw that the game was going to be a draw is say, hey, I need some help here. It looks like the game's going to go on for a while. This could impact our plans. Let's figure this out together. Yeah, how do we want to deal with this? Yeah, how do we want to deal with this? Right. I mean, instead, the impact over here was, without you saying these words, was, I don't care about your experience. I don't care that we made the agreement that we're going to do this thing this way. And this is just the way it is. Yeah. And unpacking it, I know that that wasn't your intent at all because you got into this freeze. You didn't really know what to do. Yeah, I was trying to shout, 
from the bottom of the well. <laughs> right. Right. So I wanted to share this example because it's such a, to me, it illustrates the point of how we can get grabbed by this part of ourselves that in this case, it's a part of me that goes into, there's no help for me in this situation. I have to cope with this on my own. I'm just going to batten down the hatches and, you know, the angry woman's going to come and I'm going to get the whatever happen and we'll deal with it later kind of thing. And which I think is exactly what I learned to do as a child is to just cope that way because I don't have a lot of memories of being able to go to someone and say, hey, I need help here. Right. Not a collaborative experience. And have a person who could show up and, you know, provide the kind of help that I needed in that moment. Right. Yeah. So moving forward, it's going to be some work for us to have you even see the possibility of, okay, this is for us to figure out together. And I'll have the work of being like, oh, I think, you know, rather than like being like, oh, like you didn't care for my experience, I can have the work of going and being like, hey, like, let's figure this out together. Are you right? That? Throwing me a lifeline down the, yeah. down the well. Yeah. Help me get out of there. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now, some of these moments and imprints or injuries from childhood can also be addressed a different way. And so we also wanted to share another tool that we know and love. Yeah, I'm just getting to know it. So I've had in my history a repetition of challenges with feeling like I'm really excited about something. I get really enthusiastic and really confident and joyful about what's happening. And then as a white female American in this culture, having the experience of a male figure in my life coming in and attempting to like take something from me. Yeah. I don't know if I'm explaining this quite right. So let me repeat that back. So you get in touch with something that's really exciting, interesting. Maybe it's a career goal. This has happened at work for you a number of times. Yeah. And you start showing your enthusiasm mm -hmm. and your joy mm -hmm. and you're expressing that. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think that potentially that expression of that is misinterpreted as some sort of energy of like sexuality or something, some sort of energy. Sexual turn on or something. Yeah. Receptivity or something. Yeah. So then I've had the experience of several different employers or men of authority in my life approach me from wanting to take the relationship to a different avenue, like right. proposals and decent proposals, let's say. Indecent proposals. And it's been multiple times that this has happened. And I think that it's definitely impacted my capacity in my belief in myself of like, oh, I can get really excited about something. I can get really bright. I can get really mm -hmm. big mm -hmm. and attempt to succeed at this goal. And if I do that, though, there's an unconscious part of me that says, you're not going to be safe, or it's not going to be okay, or there's a big right. rupture that's going to happen, because I didn't agree to any of these indecent proposals. Well, and it's based on your lived experience. Right. This unconscious part is telling you, watch out. Right. 
And so around this issue of having really big career goals, like you and I have done an amazing job of working together since we've met and doing the things that we've done together. In terms of like my own individual path, I've done really extraordinary things in my career. And there's been bigger goals that I've had that I have yet to meet. Mm -hmm. So it's been a little bit of a thing between us where it's like, I can get into a little bit of a victim perspective. You feel that there's an impact on the relationship. You might even lose some of your own belief in me in some form if, if, if we're not actually addressing this. Like, I think that at times you've been like, well, that's just the way it is. And there's <laughs> a lot of oh, hope it's there. just the way it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we do couples therapy and we would definitely recommend couples therapy. Especially a particular kind of couples therapy that we really believe in. Yeah. So it's packed PACT and that comes from Stan Tatkin. We've referenced him before. It's a really amazing therapy. Yeah. Incredibly potent. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we're not using couples therapy because we're in big trouble. We're using it because we want to optimize our relationship and to heal these parts. Right. So in the therapy, I remember you saying something like, oh, I didn't realize that I kind of just gave up in this area around your career, your individual career as well, because of my affect. Around mm, it. Mm -hmm, At least mm -hmm. I remember that happening. Mm hmm and that makes a lot of sense to me that was that was happening. So we were like, okay, we really want to take a look at this. What's going on here? Mm -hmm. So we decided to try EMDR. I don't know what that stands for, do you? <laughs> <laughs> it stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Okay. Which is a mouthful and it doesn't even describe what how EMDR is practiced anymore, but it started out in the 1990s, I think as a treatment that for trauma that involved the therapist moving their hand back and forth or using a red light that moved back and forth on a light bar. And the therapist would instruct the client to follow the finger or the light back and forth. And so it was believed in the beginning that the eye movement itself was the critical active ingredient in the therapy. But it turns out that the eye movement is not necessary and it also makes people dizzy. And so, but the name stuck. So mm. it's still called EMDR, even though most people who undergo EMDR are not doing the original eye movement part of it. Okay, great. And it's been very popular in the last several years and a really good way to go into a memory, a childhood memory, and get in there in a very... A uh, seasoned EMDR therapist guides you through a process that helps mm -hmm. create some healing inside of that memory. Is that an accurate way to talk about it? Yes. It's not known really what the actual mechanism is in the brain of what happens there, but it seems like the emotional quality of the memory changes mm -hmm. right. th through EMDR so that there's not so much of a sticky emotional quality there. Right. So I have had this memory for a long time of being a young girl and becoming very playful and joyful in my expression and just like loving life and dancing around and having fun as a young girl should and would. And then being approached by 
someone outside of our family and nothing abusive happened that I'm aware of, but there was just a weird dynamic where he was, can I say this on a podcast? <laughs> of course. Where he was, he had me on his lap and he was like basically writing diagrams of genitals and trying to describe to me what male and female parts were and, you know, something that wasn't this man's role to be sharing and showing me this information. It felt very unsafe. It sounds in, at least creepy, if not abusive. Okay. So, yeah. so there was something in the, that experience where joy, brightful, brilliant young girl, and then not safe and, oh my gosh, what's going on and what's happening. So there's um, a term that Peter Levine, who is also an incredibly innovative trauma teacher, would use to describe what you're talking about that I find really helpful, which is... There's an overcoupling of expression and joy and the abandon of just being a kid gets laminated to a fear response. Right. Something bad's going to happen. Right. And so effective trauma work is peeling apart the, the fear response from the thing that doesn't need to be fearful. Interesting. It shouldn't be fearful in health, right? Right. You could think about someone who had a car accident on black ice. And every time after that, black ice elicits a panic attack. Totally. I Same idea. That happened to oh, me okay. in Minnesota when we lived there. Oh. Anyway, uh, but yeah. We can do EMDR yes. now too. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so we did this in our couples therapy with our amazing therapist, packed therapist. And... It was an extraordinary experience. I mean, I got in touch with perceived memories, like who knows how much of my brain made up, but that I didn't remember before. And that since that time that we did this was just a couple of weeks ago, I have definitely felt less heightened emotional trigger or sensitivity to that moment. Hmm. And I'm really curious how it's going to support the rest of those memories that happened after that right. and how that will support my expression as individually in my own career. Beautiful. I'm excited to see how that happens too. Yeah. It's weird in trauma recovery and trauma healing. There's a, a very distinct pattern of repetition that, that I saw in so many of my patients over the years where a person who has a particular kind of car accident, not just any car accident, but the kind where let's say someone came into your blind spot behind you on the left side mm -hmm. gets repeated the exact same way wow. in multiple accidents or a person who fell off a ladder in the same direction now has fallen off a ladder three times in the same direction. So there's something about the body memory of events that creates a pattern that repeats until it gets examined and integrated and resolved. Mm -hmm. And there was a term that Freud used called the repetition compulsion. And I'm not a big Freudian, but one of those phrases like that, the repetition compulsion really stuck in my mind because I saw it so much in my practice where something happens 
usually in childhood or very early, and then there's a series of repetitions. And so I'm bringing this, I'm belaboring the issue because it's an interesting thing. It's a clue that we can use to look back into our history and look for that original experience. Mm -hmm. And then when we can find the original experience, or at least one that is emotionally bringing stuff up for us, like it's right. sensitive, we're sensitive to it. The tools are something like EMDR, mm -hmm. therapy. Right. What else would you suggest for helping with unraveling these repetitions? Well, earlier we were talking about the victim and journaling about the repetitions and about the role of the victim can be really useful. Mm -hmm. If you want to get really brave, and this is for people who maybe don't have a partner where there's a shared agreement to identify the victim like we were talking about earlier, you could ask a close friend to um, tell you what they see about your victim. Mm, that's a good one. It's scary. I love that. I've done that before twice, and it was very uncomfortable yeah. to go through it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for doing that. So what about psychedelic-assisted therapy? Sure. Some of these parts that we've been talking about today don't see the light of day without psychedelic therapy, I would say. Because you're, the mind isn't open enough to actually see different possibility and explore it in particular ways that really need to be or could be explored. Right. I mean, it could be that there's enough fragmentation and dissociation in the mind of the person that it never, that that part never presents itself clearly enough to be able to be worked with. Yeah. Or there could be enough shame in the person. And, you know, I've certainly had my share of layers of shame that prevented me from knowing what was there in me Yeah. Uh, until I got the, the right situation to unlock that. Okay. So before we wrap up, let's summarize. This stuff can get really deep. So <laughs> let's just kind of like come back up for air from this deep dive and come back to the whole reason for this conversation in the first place, which is liberation, empowerment, being able to meet the goals and desires that we deeply hold in our hearts. Exactly. To recognize the things that appear to be in the way as being on, on the, the way. way. <laughs> and to support the disavowed, disowned, um, exiled parts of ourselves that have wisdom to mm -hmm. share with us, to welcome them back. Yeah. Gently and with care so that all of our parts can be aligned in the goals that we set. Yes, absolutely. Sometimes we have to get buy-in from our parts in order to clear the path to move forward. And often it's really helpful to have this agreement in partnership that we're going to support each other, that we're going to love each other's victims, and we're going to help right. each other see when we're inside of a victim mentality that we can't see ourselves or right. we're stuck or we can't get out of. Exactly. It's kind of like, how do you effectively parent yourself when you're in an infant <laughs> space <laughs> in your mind? So it's helpful to have a competent parent on the scene. And because one or the other of us sometimes is experiencing some kind of emotional charge or some kind of regression or right. temporary insanity, it's really helpful to have <laughs> someone <laughs> who's more... Dick Schwartz would say more in self-energy, more mm -hmm. empowered, more present, more stable to hold the, the 
emotional charge. Yeah. And I think you and I are getting a lot better at identifying who that person is in the moment. Yeah. And being able to step up to the plate and hold the space and listen, even if we have needs over on our own, you know, right. side, but like to actually set those aside for a moment for the person who's struggling the most. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing that with me. Ah, thank you. I'm the luckiest lady on the earth. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope that you enjoy the beginning of your 2023 and we'll be with you again next week. Happy New Year. Talk to you next time. Thanks. Thank you so much for joining us. If you found this content valuable, please follow the show and share it with your partner or other key collaborators. If the show has sparked an interesting conversation based on these topics, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at Art of We Podcast. And we'll see you next time when we explore what it means to be better together, like butter and toast on the Art of We.